I'd heard this quote before and uh, really not given it much thought because we just encounter so much information. It's just hard to hang on uh, to all of it. But yesterday, I stumbled across it again, and I thought, uh, that kind of that goes with the message I'm preaching tomorrow. So, so let me share the quote with you. It's from George Bernard Shaw. It's long, by the way. This is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I'm of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a splendid torch, which I've got held up for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. Now, on the surface of things, that's pretty insightful and even inspirational, um, especially in these times when, at least in my experience, many, and perhaps more than a few here, live a life of malaise and mediocrity or a, a life of, of hollow hedonism that pursues one pleasure after another, the next experience, next vacation, next million. And, and you're starting to figure out, as you gather here today, that, uh, that maybe, maybe you're not as satisfied by all those things as you thought you would be. And so you hear your preacher read that quote, and you think, man, I'm going to Google it, print it, I'm going to hang it on the refrigerator, or if I'm of a certain generation, uh, find a meme, post it to Instagram or TikTok or whatever the things are in your world. But it strikes me that something about that quote is off, um, not, not quite right with it. And so in today's message, we're going to fix it together as we, as we journey through our passage from Luke chapter 5. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 5? We'll uh, be journeying through the first 11 verses together. Now, so far in Luke, we've been taking in the beginnings of Christ's earthly ministry in the region around his hometown in north, northern Israel. And to this point, his has been the ministry of an itinerant rabbi. He was traveling from town to town, and it has largely been a solo affair with him preaching. But we've begun to get a hint in what we've looked at so far that a group of devoted followers were starting to gather around him. And in our passage today, we find one of those actually kind of becoming a part of the inner circle that will become known as the 12 disciples. And he is going to find in our passage today why he's here and what his purpose in life is. And we'll see that together in our own lives, hopefully, as we journey. So look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God. Now, the Word of God there is just the good news, the gospel, which he proclaimed that he was there to, to teach in earlier passages. 
It says he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which, without getting too down into the weeds, basically lake, or the Sea of Galilee, okay? Just think of it that way. In fact, some of your um, translations may translate it as such. Verse 2, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here's what's going on. He's at the seashore. People are pressing in so that they can hear him, and he's backing up, and he's backing up, and he's backing up, and I'm scaring everybody on the front row who can see how close I'm going to the edge. And he's about to actually be in the water. And so he improvises. He sees some boats not being used, hops in them, uses that as his platform for preaching. And then in verse 4, this happens. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, this is Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, here's the piece of this that we wouldn't know otherwise. The, the reason the boats were unused and the reason that the men were washing their nets was because it was the end of their day, not the beginning of their day. Fishing at this time was largely done in darkness, and these men were likely tired, and they wanted to go home, and they wanted to rest up for another night's work. But Jesus says, hey, fellas, how would you like to put in some overtime during the least productive time of the day and do a little fishing. All right, now this explains Simon Peter's reply in verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. I mean, we've, we've done this already. It was a terrible night, but he doesn't say no, does he? And one word lets us know why he doesn't say no. Master. Now, in the other books about Jesus' life called the Gospels that record this event, the word that is used here and in settings like it is rabbi. But, but Luke is writing to a non-Jewish audience, so he uses this word to show that Peter had enough experience with Jesus to respect him as a teacher, but he also is starting to wonder if there's not something more to Jesus. Uh, because Peter, the fishing professional here, does exactly what Jesus, the teacher, asks. He recognizes that there's something more to this man than just his teaching ability, and so if he's wanting me to go fish, I will go fish. So let's keep reading. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish in their nets, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, you and I read that and we think, wow, they caught a lot of fish. But that's not Simon the fishing professional's response. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Oh, Lord, get out of here. You're scaring me to death. Clearly, Simon's brain is not on the fish. Something else has fired in him, and it has shaken him to his core. So what is going on? 
Well, let me give you a word here that uh, you may not have heard before or you may have heard before and not really understood. The word is theophany. Theophany. <laughs> theophany. A theophany is an intense manifestation of the presence of God in the Old Testament. They occur a handful of times and are done to confirm uh, God's presence and blessings at strategic times for God's people. And one of the most spectacular examples of this in the Old Testament comes in Isaiah 6, which may be familiar to a good many of us. So I want you, if you've got one of your ribbons there, I want you to hold your spot in Luke chapter 5, and I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, and I'm going to read this theophany, this experience with the presence of God that Isaiah had. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who had called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He, he recognizes he's a sinner and he's in the presence of God and it's shaken him to his core and he's fearful. Now, there's no boats or nets or large catch of fish in those verses, but Simon's response to the miracle of Jesus is the same as Isaiah's response to the vision of God in the temple, uncannily so. This experience with Jesus is turning Simon's life upside down, just like Isaiah's life had been turned upside down, and for the same reason. Through the miracle, Simon was experiencing in Jesus a theophany, an intense manifestation of the presence of God. And you may have missed it. There are going to be some other pieces added to it. But Simon's just figured out who he is and why he's here. Simon's just discovered his life's purpose. Again, when Jesus connects a few dots, he's discovered his life's purpose. So let's discover ours along with him. But before we do, I want to go back to that quote from George Bernard Shaw again. I want, to, I want to read it. Remember, I said there's something off about it. I want you to listen to it with that in mind. This is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I'm of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community. And as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. 
Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I've got held up for a moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. There's something off. You think, well, I don't know. I can't see it. Well, let's see it together by focusing on two principles from our passage. Here's the first principle. Life's purpose is found in seeing Jesus, really seeing Jesus. And by that, I mean seeing Jesus as God. Now, I have to admit here that Peter doesn't yet have at this point a a fully formed Trinitarian theology and therefore doesn't understand in all likelihood that the person before him is the incarnate God of the Old Testament who was high and lifted up in Isaiah's vision. At least he doesn't understand that as he would later understand it and as we understand it today. But it is absolutely true that he understood that he was in the divine presence working through Jesus to bring about the miraculous catch of fish. And we know this because of his response. Remember Isaiah's response in Isaiah 5, 6? It's on the screen. He he said, uh, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I have a a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. I, I dwell in the midst of sinners, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When confronted with a vision of the Almighty, Isaiah became acutely aware of his sin because his experience in the temple made him acutely aware of God's holiness. And all of this worked to make him acutely aware of the judgment that he deserved because of the offense of his sin to God's holiness. And this is what is at work in Simon's life after the miracle. Look again at his words. You'll you'll see if you haven't already the similarity. In verse 8, he fell down and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Simon may not have understood that Jesus was God as we understand it today. It would take the resurrection to close that circuit in people's minds. But he knew that he was in the divine presence through Jesus, which made him aware of his sinfulness in light of God's holiness, which made him terrified of the judgment he knew he deserved for his sin. But just as Isaiah would receive mercy from God, Simon received mercy and was given his life's purpose, which we'll get to in just a moment. But right now, I want us all to grasp that mercy and grace and purpose find their headwaters in seeing Jesus, in really seeing Jesus for the first time as God. Now, I think sometimes we tend to think of Jesus' divinity is little more than a theological puzzle to work or a, a doctrinal truth to affirm, but it's much more than that. It goes back to something I said in a sermon a month or so ago. If Jesus is God, then our lives become His domain. 
We can no longer think of ourselves as autonomously guided vehicles, free to steer our lives in whatever direction we deem appropriate in whatever moment we happen to be in. If Jesus is God, then all things were created through Him and for Him, as Paul said in the New Testament book of Colossians. And that means if all things were created through Him and for Him, guess what? That means the person looking at you in the mirror was created through Him and for Him him. If Jesus is God, then who we are is answered. We are His. And I, and I don't think that the fullness of what that means is as appreciated as it needs to be as we think about the trajectory of our lives and the decisions that trajectory entails. Let's think about our jobs either the job that we're preparing for or will shortly prepare for or the job at which we're currently working. Our tendency is to think of our job as the means to our personal fulfillment, be it financial fulfillment or vocational fulfillment. But if Jesus is God, then your job, whatever it is, should be part of the means to His purpose in your life. And every decision that you make about that job or about what job to pursue should be in light of that purpose. Now, though there are more of them in the earlier service than this one, let, let's think about those nearing or, or in retirement. I'm of the age when retirement's starting to show up on, on the horizon. Uh, if I didn't think that, the third grandchild showing up uh, certainly would have convinced me of that this week. And at least as I can understand things right now, I know when that day will be. But listen to me, that day isn't being determined based solely on reaching a certain age. For me, it's based on when I believe the church will have had enough of me, yes, but more so it's based on when I think the time will arrive for the church and God's purposes here to be better served by the next generation of leadership and when God's purposes for me are better fulfilled by whatever comes next for me. So then when I retire, I can't view it as my hall pass for the rest of life. I have to view it as the next stage of my journey in fulfilling my life's purpose. Why? Because I've seen Jesus. I mean, I've really seen Him. He, he is God. And if I am created by Him and for Him, His say isn't the final say in how I live my life. It's the only say in how I live my life. Our life's purpose is found in seeing Jesus. And when that happens... We quickly realize, at least we should, that life's purpose is found in serving Jesus. Uh, Simon wasn't alone in understanding that he was in God's presence after witnessing the miraculous catch of fish. Look at verse 9. For he, after he had said this, get out of here statement, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken and so also were James and John, who will be some of the twelve sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Now, I really, I honestly don't mean to, 
to make light of anything. I mean, we've already seen what a shattering experience this was in Simon's life and by implication in, in these other two men's life and all who were witnessing. They were all processing this miracle on some level as an encounter with the holy. Awesome to behold and perhaps they thought even deadly to sinners like them. So I absolutely promise you that I am not trying to diminish these men's responses in any way whatsoever, but I want you to go with me for a moment. These men were professional fishermen, and they had just experienced what might well have been the biggest financial windfall from their labors that any of them had ever experienced. So it is not beyond the realm of possibility that one of them heard Simon say, get out of here, and said, Simon, chill out. I mean, can you imagine how much bank we would make if this guy's around to help us fish? I mean, seriously, it may be a bit absurd, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. And, and Jesus, I think, probably thought some of that because look at what he says in verse 10. And so Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. He's saying, I'm not here to help you be a better fisherman. I'm here to give you your life's purpose. Created through me and for me, I'm telling you that your life's purpose is to fish for the hearts and souls of men. Now, I want you to think with me how a good many of us conceive of our relationship with Jesus. We, we dream up His purpose for our lives. You know, I mean, that's, that's part of what we're encouraging students to do right now. What do you want to be? When you grow up, we, we, we dream up what our purpose is going to be, to be successful in business or, or maybe to have a great marriage or maybe to raise honorable children, maybe to retire well. And so we seek out Jesus so he can help us fulfill our purpose. But the only proper response to Jesus when we encounter him as God, is what is your purpose for me? And all of us, on some level, have the same purpose that Simon has, to fish for the hearts and souls of men with the net of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Out of that, we may experience some success in business, or maybe not, or we may have a great marriage, or maybe not. We may raise champion children. Or maybe not. We may retire well. Or maybe not. But all of those things flow downstream from our ultimate purpose, which is to be used by the divine King Jesus in the advancement of his kingdom, in the platform that he has placed us. And so like those who were gathered on the shore that day were faced with a decision. 
Are we going to continue to make Jesus essentially the mascot of our lives to help us achieve our purpose, or will we realize beings created for Him and through Him realize that we are here to serve His purposes? And will we be willing to do what the disciples do in verse 11, which is leave everything and follow him? Let's go back to our quote. Here's how I think our passage fixes its significant problems. This is the true joy in life. The being used for a purpose determined by the Almighty. The being a force for Him. Instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world and God will not devote Himself to making me happy. I'm of the opinion that my life belongs to Christ and His church. And as long as I live... It is my privilege to do for him and his church whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up for him when I die. For the harder I serve him, the more I live. I rejoice in life for his sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I've got held up for his glory. And I want to make it burn brightly as possible before stepping into that glory for eternity. We fixed it. So how might this alter the trajectory of our lives? What does it mean for us to, to, to leave everything to fulfill Christ's purpose for us? Let me offer in closing three suggestions. First, it will probably be less about what you are doing as it will be your motive for doing it. You know what the world needs? It needs roads, it needs airports, it needs groceries, and it needs insurance agents. The world needs those things. And some of you have been positioned by God to provide those things, but your purpose in doing them is not to provide insurance and build roads and airports. Your purpose in doing them is to fish for the hearts and the life of men in the circle that he has placed you in. It will be less about what you're doing as it is your motive for doing it. You'll wake up to go to that job or to take care of those kids at home or you'll wake up in retirement to do that. It will probably be less about what you're doing as it will be your reward for doing it. In other words, you'll do what you do for the joy of fulfilling the purpose God has for you in your vocation or in your marriage or in your home or in your retirement. For those of us who constantly struggle with joy in the life we have been given, for every person who is here burnt out, and I've been there, Absolutely. I mean, there's not a person who's worked very many years in their, their lives, preachers included, who on the right day wouldn't trade their job for a peanut butter sandwich. 
burnout, struggling with joy. If that's you, the secret sauce for you is embracing the ultimate purpose for your life, which isn't that job, but is to use that job as the means to fish for the hearts and life of men. And it will probably be less about what you are doing as it will be your commitment for doing it. Understanding that God has called you to use your life as his platform for advancing his kingdom will fire a commitment to throw yourself into his purpose for you that you always lack. Now, of course, there may be some here who have to completely abandon what you're doing because God's purpose for you will require a different vocation or a different location. Or it may require you to completely reorder your life because how you've currently ordered your life is sinful. But for most of us, it will simply be looking at the life we have and rather than being clothed-fisted with it, thinking it's ours, be open-handed and saying it's God's. And how will he use me in the midst of it? The miraculous catch of fish revealed Christ's identity and Simon's purpose. And it, it shows us that our life's purpose isn't fulfilled until we see Jesus as master. Let's realize our life's purpose by completely abandoning ourselves to the one through whom and for whom we were created. Join me in prayer.